Well, good morning, uh, or afternoon, or, or evening, whatever it is for you, however long it takes you to get ready on a Sunday morning when you have nowhere to go. I hope that you're ready to uh, be able to worship the Lord together today, and I look forward to being able to walk through the text of Scripture and the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8, with you. Uh, before I do that, I want to give you some assurances from Scripture, and I'd also like to give you some instructions about uh, how to use the sermon uh, in your, your home there. Uh, so I start with some assurance. Uh, I hope and pray that you believe that God is completely in control, that he's totally in control, and that he's sovereign over all of the events uh, that we are facing. Uh, a few days ago now, on Thursday, I had the opportunity to hear one of our seminary students, also a member of our church, uh, walk through a passage of the Psalms and I thought it was especially fitting for us, and it should be encouraging to us. It's Psalm 91, and I want to read just a few of those verses with, with you, or for you. Psalm 91, verse 1 says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler, and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrows that fly by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. The Lord Most High is our dwelling place and our refuge. I hope and trust that these words of the ancient psalmist that steadied him and were an anchor for his soul will encourage you as well to trust in God. We can trust Him. He is our fortress. He is our refuge. He is our God. Well, I want to give you just a few instructions about uh, what we have available for you to use together as a family uh, to worship. Uh, first of all, I want to let you know that we've recorded this sermon for you so that you could, uh, you could hear it and you could study it together. It's my hope that as our congregation is in various places, that they'll all be hearing the same word together and so as we communicate with each other, as we interact with each other, we'll be able to share everything that God is teaching us uh, in our, uh, and through this passage. Uh, second, after the sermon, I encourage you to work together through the devotional handout that I've created for you from Hebrews chapter 8. That handout is available online. You can look it up and you can either print it out for people in your group or you can look at it as a PDF on your phone and uh, someone in the group can walk you through it, and you can do the discussion questions together. And then third, I have an idea. I want to ask each one of you to participate in this, if you're able to. Uh, the idea is this. I would love for you to go onto our Facebook or Instagram uh, pages as a church, and I would love for you to take a picture, uh, an appropriate picture, of yourself or your family uh, worshiping at your home uh, today, and post that online under our church's page on Facebook or Instagram. And with it, I'd like for you to include 
uh, the content of a verse or a passage of Scripture uh, that anchors you uh, when you go through trying times. And I think God will use that in a few different ways. I, th I think he will use it to encourage believers. If there are other believers who are anxious, a bit anxious, or concerned about what is going on, I think that passage of God's word might help them. And then I also think it'll be a powerful testimony to unbelievers of the confidence that we have in our great God at this time. So consider doing that for us. Post those pictures. I, I can't wait to see uh, where you're worshiping uh, together uh, on Sunday. This time I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. We've been looking at the fourth major section of the book of Hebrews, and we're right in the middle of considering the lengthy doctrinal section, the largest doctrinal section in the whole book. This doctrinal section is about priests, covenants, and sacrifices. And we've learned a lot about the priests up until this point. And uh, with this sermon, I think we'll finish our section about the priests. So far, we've learned about the old priest and Jesus. We learned the three primary characteristics of the old priest, as I see it. Uh, first, they could not bring things to completion. That is, they never got everything done. It was never finished, and this was no fault of theirs, for it was the way the old covenant was set up. But they're consistently and continually offering sacrifices daily uh, on behalf of the sins of the people of Israel and their own sins. And so they couldn't get the job done. A second characteristic of them was that they were not always there for you. Their priesthood might last a year or five years, 15 or 20, but uh, there was a continual uh, progression of priests and different priests, one after another. They, they weren't always there for you. And then finally, I described them this way, uh, they could not get you to God. You remember a few weeks ago, we talked about what would happen if a sincere worshiper of God wanted to go into the Holy of Holies to experience the presence of God there. Of course, the old priest would not allow that to happen for your own sake, for your own safety. They would say, there's no way you can go in there. The old priest could not get you to God. But then last week, we had the privilege of looking at the priesthood of Jesus Christ, the new priest. And I described it to you in three ways as well. His priesthood was built on a better basis. It was built on an oath by God. For a thousand years before he was ever born, through the writing of David, God took an oath that he would establish a priest after the order of Melchizedek and that this priest would reign forever. And so uh, Jesus' priesthood is better than the old priest because it's established on an oath taken by God. It's also better because his priesthood lasts longer. It's eternal. It goes on forever and ever, and it, and it has unending benefits for those who will be followers of God. And then finally, his, his priesthood is exactly what we need. So if you look down in your Bibles in Hebrews uh, chapter 7, and you look at verse 26, it says this. It says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. He's exactly what we need. We learned in this text that you and I are utterly sinful, in need of uttermost saving, but that he is holy and innocent and unstained 
separated from sinners, and he is the, the one being whom God exalted to be at his right hand. You see, this high priest, Jesus, offers true salvation to utterly sinful people. He's exactly what we need. And so today, as we look at Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 6, we learn one last attribute of his high priesthood. Here we'll see his present location. But before we dig deeper into this passage, I want to remind you of the original situation in which these words occur. Here the author of Hebrews is originally addressing a group of Jewish believers who were under great duress. I think that many of them were facing severe persecution by Roman leaders and authorities. Some of them were being thrown into prison and beaten for their faith in Jesus Christ, and things didn't seem to be getting any better for them. Perhaps others, I think it's likely, were facing pressure from their Jewish relatives, pressure to go back to their former way of life, pr pressure to go back and to, uh, to serve God through the Old Covenant. And so perhaps some of these professing Jewish believers were already going back some saw their older brothers and sisters walk away from the profession of faith in Jesus, and it all seemed to be okay for them. I'm sure it was much better for them, as I think that the persecution was directed more towards Christians than to Jewish people or those following Judaism. Others saw family and friends walk away from their faith completely, from Christianity or Judaism, so that they could enjoy the pleasures of their world. They were attracted to freedom, freedom to do their own thing, freedom to follow whatever their flesh was craving, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pleasures of this world. So the author, in a sense, is like standing in their way, making one last case for them to stop, and so what he does is he gives them truth, he gives them doctrine, and then he warns them. He warns them one last time before it's like the, the author just turns to the side and will allow them to make their own choice. Perhaps you're at that same place today. You've seen others, friends, family members, walk away from Christ to fulfill their own desires. Perhaps it was older siblings friends at school or work, and they now seem to be enjoying themselves in their parties, their sensualities, their pursuit of pleasures, their drunkenness, or their complete agnosticism concerning God. But you must consider this passage today. You must consider your utter need to cling to your profession of faith in Jesus you might think, perhaps, that you'll just keep Christ and you'll add the old things in as well, or you'll add the things that you really covet or crave uh, as well as Christ. But, but men and women, the Bible says, no man can serve two masters. You cannot possibly serve both God and money or things. You must make a choice today who will be the Lord of your life? Will it be Jesus or yourself? And please don't deceive yourself. It cannot be both. 
And so it's my prayer as we walk briefly through this text this morning that this text of Scripture, that God will use it to overwhelm you, that you will be engulfed by the beauty of our great high priest Jesus and surrender completely to him. So I want to start with prayer along those lines. Let's pray together. Dear Father, I pray that you would do a work through Hebrews 8 verses 1 through 6. I pray that you would take the simplicity and the weakness of this sermon through media and use it for your honor and glory. I pray that we would all see that the Lord Jesus is our great high priest and that he must be Lord of our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now as we go through this text, the author frames the text in two sections. He starts with a summary statement and then he moves to a final comparison. I want to start by looking at the summary statement with you. It's in verses 1 and 2. Look there in your Bible. It says, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a great high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, and not man. I really like the way this starts, this verse, with a summary statement. Uh, perhaps you are listening, uh, you remember listening at one time to your teacher, and she was instructing you about a complicated subject for a long time, maybe a half hour or an hour, and you know, you tried to follow her, but honestly, uh, you kept getting lost in the details. So then your teacher says something like this. They say, the main point in what I'm saying is this, and then they give you one clear sentence, concise sentence that helps you understand it. And it's that one sentence that God would use to unlock kind of the whole concept and help you put all the pieces together. Well, I think that's what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's giving an important summary here, which unlocks what he's been saying in chapters 7 and 8. This summary statement has two important ideas one at the end of verse 1, and one in verse 2. And so we look at the first one in the middle of verse 1. Read your Bible with me. It says, One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Here we learn something about the priesthood of Jesus. We learn of his completed or finished work as a great high priest. You see, uh, having accomplished the basis of our, e our eternal redemption... Through the cross and through his resurrection, Jesus was exalted by God to a heavenly throne, and there he sat down on the right hand of the majesty of God. Of course, this concept is one that believers like to make much out of. Jesus sat down. We talked about this in, in Hebrews chapter 1, for instance, when we were going through all those quotes from the Old Testament. When in Hebrews 1 and verse 13, the author says that God didn't say to angels to sit down, but to the Son, he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Believers love to stress that Christ is done, that no more sacrifices need to be offered because he now sits down at the right hand of God. The old covenant priest would never sit 
or not sit frequently during their ministry in the old tabernacle, but Jesus is done. This emphasizes the finished work of Christ on our behalf. And I think this idea is important for us. I think it's especially important for those of us who tend to be introspective. That is the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice to cover every one of our sins is especially helpful to those of us who beat themselves up about the nature of their ugly sin. I think many of us, if we're honest, we continually or normally feel dirty and defeated and discouraged in our sin. Uh, We're discouraged about the volume and the frequency of our sin. And so if that is you as you're watching today, let me just tell you to rejoice in the nature of the righteousness that you experience in Jesus Christ. It's done. It's over. Every one of your sins has been forgiven. Someone has paid the price. Someone has appeased every ounce of God's wrath against your sins. Whether those sins are things in your past you hope no one ever uncovers, or those sins are something present, or even as blessed of a thought as this is, whether those sins are future, those are completely covered by the work of Jesus. This is his finished work as a high priest. He sat down. But then as you turn to verse 2 and you see the second part of the summary statement, the author tells us that now he is a minister in the holy places. And here, I I think it's important for us to understand a a few words to make sense of verse 2. The first word I I, I would encourage you to, to think about is the word minister. Minister. Now the word minister had both a secular and a religious use in the first century. In the secular world, ministers were public servants of the community. Those who contributed to the community's well-being. They would represent and serve normal citizens. So it could be used in a secular way, but it can also be used in a religious way. And there it was normally used of the service that priests would perform when they represented humanity to a god. Of course, when it comes to Judaism in the Old Testament or Christianity in the New, it's representing humanity to the creator God. But there's something I want to emphasize with you about the way this word is used in verse 2. Up in verse 1, we said that the word uh, that he was seated uh, represented the completed work of Jesus Christ. Here I think the word minister captures the ongoing work of Jesus on our behalf. For there is a ministry that the Lord Jesus continues to pursue in heaven. And if you keep reading in the text, I think you can learn a little bit more about it. For you learn the location, the specific location where Jesus is performing continual ministry. When it says that he does this in the holy places holy places. Now, these words were literally, or could literally be translated in the holies. This is the most frequent way for the author of Hebrews to describe the present location of Christ. These words could be translated in the sanctuary, 
But then if you keep reading, he tells us a little bit more about the sanctuary when he says that it was also in the true tent that the Lord set up and not man. Some translations will take the word tent and will translate it tabernacle, and I think either are helpful. But the real question here is, what is the true tent or the true tabernacle in which the Lord is currently ministering? Now, some theologians will take this true tent, and they think that it's a reference to the body of Jesus himself. This teaching goes back to John Owen and John Chrysostom before him. Uh, Others say, no, the true tabernacle here in this verse is speaking about the church. The teaching goes back to Cornelius. There was an English commentator that was very well known. His name is F.F. Bruce. He says the true tabernacle or tent is the individual believer. But I think it's better here to see this as something different. It seems to me that this is a synonymous expression for the holy places. So if you're looking at verse 2, I think what he's saying is that the holy place is the true tabernacle. The true tabernacle is the holy place. Now, of course, both of these words, holy place and tabernacle, are used frequently in the Old, Old Testament scripture. They're used of the tabernacle that Moses set up and the holy of holies. But, but I think that the author has a different tent or tabernacle in mind in this text. And he gives us a few clues about how, so that we can know that. One of them is he says this true tabernacle was set or pitched by God and not man. In the Old Covenant scriptures, in the Old Testament scriptures, uh, the men... Uh, who were doing worship in, in the Old Covenant era were the ones who would be fastening the tent pegs of the tabernacle. And so as they would travel in the wilderness, they would take the whole tent down and then they would pitch or set up the, the tabernacle in its new location. But not so with Jesus' present location, for it's not pitched by man, but it is set up by God. I think there's another way he tells us that it's not the mosaic tabernacle that he's describing here, for he uses the adjective true. He attaches this word to the the idea of tabernacle here. It's, It's true. It's the true tent. Now, this does not mean that the mosaic tabernacle was false. Instead, I think it means only to emphasize the genuineness And the unique quality of the tabernacle where Jesus is now performing his religious service. And so I say with you, I think in verse 2, the location where Jesus is presently ministering in the holy place in the true tent set up by God and not man is in heaven in the presence of God. And so what this verse is talking about, verse 2, him being a current minister there is describing Jesus' ongoing ministry for us on behalf of our sins. See, verse 1 emphasizes his one-time sacrifice and its sufficiency. But here we learn he ministers today for us through ongoing intercession for God for our sins. And this part of the summary, I think, is helpful for all of us as well. But perhaps those especially of us who who uh, take our present sins too lightly. Some of us don't normally consider how each one of our sins is uh, against the character of God and offends him and his glorious holiness. 
Perhaps we've fallen so many times in particular areas that another failure doesn't even really affect us anymore. It doesn't affect our emotions or our volition at all. And so we sin and we don't give another thought to going to God in repentant prayer and admitting our failure before him clearly and asking him to forgive us of our sins. I'll just use an analogy, I think, to picture kind of uh, my idea here. It's like we're, we're like a father or a husband who continually assaults his family with his explosive anger. He explodes in anger only to move on afterwards without expressing remorse to them or sorrow to them or asking them to forgive him. You see, this father, this husband has grown accustomed to his sin. It doesn't really affect him anymore. And in his stubbornness, he doesn't realize how much this is affecting other people. Or we're like the children who regularly rebel against their parents and don't then run to them afterwards seeking forgiveness, asking for forgiveness. These children have become hardened and they don't think it's a big deal to disobey because they've done it so many times before. I think sometimes this is how we treat God. We forget to go back to him and consider the significance of our rebellious actions against him. And so what we need to know is we need to know what Jesus is doing continually now, what he's doing for us. He's pleading for us regarding our sinfulness today. He is appealing to God. He's interceding for us regarding the nature of our ongoing sinfulness. This is Jesus' ongoing ministry before the Father. And after this important summary statement, the author makes one final comparison between the old and new priest. He starts with the old priest in verses 3 through 5. Look with me there. It says, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth... He would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mount. To make a final point about Jesus, the author passes one more time through his description of these old covenant priests. He starts by saying that these old priests were required to, uh, to have something to offer to God. And he uses two familiar words. He says they were to give gifts and sacrifices to him. These old priests had to follow the requirements laid out under the law of Moses regarding sacrifices. And so they had to offer bulls and goats and pigeons and things like that as specified under the Mosaic Covenant. But then in verse 5, we learn something new here about these gifts and sacrifices and the tabernacle in which these things took place. We learn that they were a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. And if we're going to understand this passage, we need to look at both of those words and understand the concept and what the author of Hebrews is saying. So he first starts out by saying, these things, 
we're just a copy of the heavenly things. The word copy, I think, would be something uh, of which many of the Jewish people would be proud. For uh, they believed that the tabernacle was a copy of the heavenly throne room of God. And it seems to me, as I look at this passage, that the author of Hebrews might believe as well that the Mosaic tabernacle was patterned off of a heavenly one, and that he believes this on the basis of an Old Testament text. He believes this because of Exodus 25 and verse 40, and that is the verse that he quotes at the the end of verse 5 in your Bible. In that text, when Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai to meet with God, God says to him, See that you make everything according to the pattern that I have shown you on the mountain. In that passage, Moses sees some kind of pattern or blueprint on which to base his designs for the tabernacle. Now, in the greater context of this Old Testament text, Moses is instructed by God regarding these specific dimensions and materials of the furniture in, uh, and the building itself. As I've gone through that text in Exodus, and I've looked at all of the descriptions, how elaborate and uh, how many uh, different parts of the tabernacle there were, I, I couldn't help but wonder how Moses could keep all of this straight. How could he, how could he keep it all fixed in his mind? For instance, I was uh, I observed that in this passage, just before this, uh, that there were ten verses of material about what one of the golden lampstands were to look like. I think it must have been confusing for Moses, but God did give Moses some sort of pattern or model to look at. But that's where the debate begins to rage about this. The debate is whether the pattern that God gave Moses was actually a vision of the throne room of God or a a pattern based off of what it must have looked like in heaven. Some scholars, of course, completely reject this. Others, however, think that the pattern that God gave Moses was was, uh, perhaps in some way related to the heavenly throne room. Some scholars take it way too far, and they look for a one-to-one correspondence between everything in the heavenly and earthly tabernacles. My perspective or opinion here is that there was definitely some sort of correspondence between these things, between the earthly one. But I think that in in knowing that the earthly one is is just a copy of the heavenly one, I, I don't think we should at all get involved in looking at every little piece and speculating about what the heavenly throne room should be like. But it seems, it seems to make sense to me that God would use the heavenly throne room them as some sort of prototype for worship, since that where, is where genuine worship of God originated. I think we can safely deduce that the Jews had, what the Jews had in the Old Testament tabernacle was a copy of the original or the genuine place of worship. Now, I agree with one of the commentators here uh, in, that described the Jewish perspective of this. He said, in Exodus, the fact that the earthly tabernacle was to be a copy of the heavenly one would have been understood positively. It's something I think the Jews would have rejoiced and boasted in. However, 
the next word, shadow, is not something that would be very flattering to them. When the author uses this word, he is confronting, I think, his Jewish readers. The word shadow is used not very often in the New Testament, seven times. When it is used, I think it's normally used of the shadow or the shade that would be cast by some material being or object. So, for instance, in Mark chapter 4, verse 32, it's used of the shade, the shadow, that a great grown mustard tree would cast forth. In the book of Acts, it's used of the shadow that Simon Peter casts. There were some who were hoping to touch Simon Peter in an effort to be healed. There were other lame people who thought that there would be no way they could get there to touch them. They were just simply hoping to lay in his shadow in an effort to be healed by God. Yet I think that there is one text, one clear text in the New Testament that helps us understand the way the author of Hebrews is using the term shadow here. That text is written by the Apostle Paul. And it's Colossians 2 and verse 17. There the Apostle Paul says, uh, these are a shadow of the things to come. He's referring to the things of the law, the things of Moses. They're a shadow of the things to come. But then he continues. He says, but the substance belongs to Christ. There the Apostle Paul uses the word shadow in in a way that's a little bit more negative. It's inferior to the body or the substance of the genuine one, Christ. The actual word for substance here is a word that is the Greek term soma, which could be translated body. They have a shadow. Those old things are a shadow. But in Jesus, we have the body. We have the substance. Now, in his sermon on this text, John Piper gives a great illustration of this. He asks you to imagine when you were a kid, when you were a child. You're in a grocery store, and you're holding your mother's hand, but then for some reason she lets go and steps away, perhaps to look at something. Well, suddenly as a small child, you realize that your mother's not there anymore, and so you get a lump in your throat. You're scared and you don't know where to go. You look around and all you see is, you know, cereal or bagels or something like that in the grocery store. So you run to the end of the aisle and there on the floor you see a shadow and it looks just like your mother. Now, which is better? The shadow that gives you so much hope that your mother is just around the corner or your mother? in the flesh? The answer is always your mother. Now men and women, when Jesus came to this earth and accomplished salvation with his own sacrifice, we got the substance. We experienced the replacement of the shadow with reality. So the author of Hebrews confronts his readers here one last time as they consider going back to the old covenant and the earthly high priest going back to Judaism. He says, these things all around you, they're only copies, they're models, they're not the real and genuine thing. It's as ridiculous as a mother who has been longing for a baby who finally gives birth and brings the baby home but then puts her baby aside quickly only to go to the closet and pull out the old baby dolls that she used to dream about and take care of. 
that that's ridiculous. So the author of Hebrews here says, these things that you are thinking about going back to, they're just a copy. They're a model. They're toys. Don't go back to the model. You have a better priest who ministers in the true place in heaven. And so we see as new covenant followers of Jesus that he's so much better. And if you have eyes to see through or beyond the shadows, you see more. You see the person. You see the substance, Jesus Christ. And that's where the author of Hebrews concludes in verse 6 by telling us one last thing about Christ. Look there in your Bibles. It says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Here we learn that Christ has obtained something. I think those words, has obtained, speak of success and victory that Jesus achieved through his death and resurrection. And what he has obtained here in this text, it tells us very simply, was a more excellent ministry, a ministry of more excellence than the old priest. And it's more excellent because it's based upon a better covenant. Here I think that we learn that his, his priesthood is not based on the Mosaic covenant, it's based on a new covenant that the author of Hebrews is going to tell us about at the end of the chapter. And that this new covenant then is, is superior as well because it's based on better promises. Now, to read of the new covenant and the better promises of it, we could go to different places in the Old Testament scripture. But here the author of Hebrews at the end of chapter 8 will go to a citation from the book of Jeremiah, the ancient words of the prophet Jeremiah which talked about a better covenant that would come that would replace Moses' covenant. And so what I would like to do with you as we close, uh, next week we'll look at this next passage in close detail, in full detail. But I would like to just read through this citation of the blessing and the promises of the new covenant. And as we do so, I want you to look for one thing. I want you to look and see all of the things that God promises to do for the people of Israel and Judah, his followers, the things that he promises to do. And you can see these very clearly. I encourage you to look for the words, I will. This comes from the perspective of God. These are things God will do for them. So look down in your Bibles at the middle of verse 8. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Men and women, these are the better promises of the new covenant.
We do not deserve any promise from God other than the promise of his divine wrath and eternal punishment. Yet in Christ, we are given many promises of divine blessing, forgiveness of sins, and a personal relationship with God. Perhaps you're watching this sermon today and you are not normally present for my preaching. Or perhaps you're not normally moved by preaching. But God in His grace has changed things up for you. You're no longer in a sanctuary or an auditorium, but you're watching this in your living room or in your bedroom. And in His goodness, He has got your attention. And what you need to know is not really anything about the rooms in which you are. What you need to know is that there is a more important location for you, a place where Jesus ministers on behalf of those who will turn to him. Anyone who will turn to him in faith. And so he is the one you really need. Don't pursue your own way. This is the truth. This is the warning I present to you. And I ask you, as the author of Hebrews asked his readers, what choice will you make? Will Jesus Christ be your Lord and great high priest? Or will you serve another? Will you serve yourself? I pray and ask God in his goodness to do a work in our hearts so each one of us will consider the ways we can pursue Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I do pray that you would take this simple word preached, and I pray that you would use it for your honor and your glory. Please overwhelm us. Please engulf us with this great love for who Jesus is, our great high priest. And I would pray for uh, one or two, perhaps, who have seen others walk away, and they seem to be doing okay, and perhaps are considering, them, considering it themselves. I pray that they would be willing to say no to these things, to say no to their own flesh, and be willing to trust in our Lord and Savior, the great high priest Jesus.